Hey everyone, this is Kendall from the Recording Lounge Podcast, and today we're starting part two of our three-part series on microphones. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about our three primary microphone types, how they work, what they're about, what they're good on, what they're not so good on, how you can use them in your studio. So the first type of microphone we need to talk about is dynamic microphones. Dynamic microphones use a wire coil and a magnet to create an audio signal. They're essentially a speaker wired in reverse. When sound hits the element, the diaphragm, it vibrates, and thus the coil vibrates back and forth past the magnet. There's an electrical current that is created in the coil, which contains the audio signal. Dynamic microphone diaphragm is usually made from plastic, probably most often mylar. This is the same stuff they use to make drum heads. So a lot of our, you know, sort of references and comparisons with drum heads, they hold up. Dynamic microphones are very simple devices. Usually the element itself goes directly to a transformer and then to the output jack. Not really much circuitry involved at all. They're not the most sensitive of microphones and are often much more colored sounding, meaning they have their own kind of signature, like pre-EQ'd sound, much more drastic than most ribbon mics or condenser mics, which generally have flatter responses overall. Dynamic microphones are generally split into two practical categories. You have sort of normal dynamic microphones and large diaphragm dynamic microphones. The diaphragm elements of normal dynamic microphones are not really small, so perhaps you could call them like medium diaphragm. But large diaphragm dynamic mics, such as the SM7, the RE20, and many kick drum microphones available, have a larger diaphragm, which means it's capable of capturing low frequencies better, may have lower noise, And like I said, this is the same for speakers. Larger speakers have an easier time reproducing low frequencies. Smaller microphone diaphragms, and likewise smaller speakers, have an easier time producing accurate high frequencies. They both have their pros and cons. Now, dynamic microphones have a couple of prominent features. Number one, they're generally quite durable. Number two, they have a very long lifespan. Number three, they need very little maintenance. Number four, they can take significant amounts of input level. For example, the SM57 can take around 160 dB, which is like a shotgun blast from a few feet away. And number five, they're generally quite affordable. Because of their design, dynamic microphones are usually low output and require a lot of gain. They can be a little bit noisy sometimes because of that, especially if you have to crank up the gain really high. But often that noise is coming from your preamp, not from the actual microphone itself. A great device that I use all the time is the SE Dynamite, which is like an inline microphone preamp. Okay, you probably have heard of a cloud lifter. It's the same idea, but the SE Dynamite is, is new. It's a little bit better, in my opinion, and really can help boost up the output of a quiet dynamic microphone or a ribbon microphone. Dynamic microphones are great on all kinds of sources, vocals, drums, guitar amps, I mean, really almost anything. Their biggest weakness tends to be on instruments needing lots of detail or clarity, such as cymbals, acoustic instruments, things like that. And again, because they tend to be a bit of a colored sound, they sometimes suffer in situations where you need an accurate, flat representation of the source. I will say, though, 
there's something handy about the way that dynamic microphones kind of are pre-shaped EQ-wise, right? Like you can pick a microphone for something that already has a pretty definitive color on it, and that might get you closer to a finished result rather than just recording something flat and having to EQ the crap out of it. So I'm not saying that having its own sort of definitive colored sound is a bad thing. In fact, I think it's a great feature of dynamic microphones. Uh, and it also helps us decide a little bit easier, does this microphone work? Because it's a more colored sound, sometimes you know immediately, no, that doesn't sound good. And you can try a different one. Does that sound better? Yes. Okay, let's use that instead. You know, whereas it's a little bit harder to do shootouts on condenser mics when some of them can sound really, really similar to each other. Okay, let's talk about ribbon microphones. Ribbon microphones use a small piece of metal, usually aluminum, suspended between two clips and two magnets. The ribbon itself is very thin, often just a few microns thick. The length and width of the ribbon is usually the primary factor that determines its sound, but of course also the thickness and the type of metal used. The ribbon is usually corrugated to increase strength and durability. Corrugating is like, uh, you know, folding back and forth, much like an accordion. Ribbon mics are also very simple devices. Technically speaking, they're just another type of dynamic microphone. They're usually very low output and lower sensitivity, just like dynamic microphones. Ribbon microphones are generally split into three or four different categories. Number one, active or passive ribbons, okay? Passive ribbons are basically just like dynamic mics. You have the element, it vibrates, goes to an output transformer, goes to the output jack. Active ribbon mics generally use an internal preamp circuit to boost up the output gain of the ribbon. Uh, this circuit could also contain tonal shaping features, things like that. This is essentially like a cloud lifter or an SE Dynamite inline preamp, but inside of the microphone. This also helps carry a stronger signal over a long cable run, which is good, reduces impedance issues, things like that. Another type of category we have is a long versus a short ribbon. This is kind of like the ribbon mic's equivalent of large or small diaphragm. Since a ribbon's not a circle, we kind of have to talk about it in terms of is it a long ribbon or a short ribbon. And just like you'd expect, the longer the ribbon is, the better it is at picking up low frequencies. The shorter the ribbon is, the better it is at picking up high frequencies. Again, it's that balance, finding what works. An M160, for example, from Biodynamic, that's a short ribbon microphone, a very short ribbon, versus like an AEA big ribbon type mic like the 44, any of those, that's a much longer ribbon. Now, while most ribbon microphones are solid state, there are a few tube ribbon mics on the market. The Royer 122V was the first commercially produced vacuum tube ribbon mic, which is actually super cool to me because it was released in the early 2000s. And it's super cool that we're using two very old technologies, ribbon microphones and tubes, in one new product that, for the first time, is being released in the early 2000s. Pretty wild. Now, ribbon microphones typically have a very smooth, sometimes dark sound. They tend to have a high-frequency roll-off due to the nature of the ribbon, but that makes them really excellent for capturing bright sounds like horns, strings, cymbals, electric guitars, percussion, all kinds of stuff. In terms of transient response, ribbon microphones tend to have a very punchy kind of sound. Now, even though they're not incredibly sensitive on paper, the ribbon element itself is so thin that it usually has a really punchy transient response. It's very sensitive physically. It's not necessarily as sharp sounding as a condenser microphone, but the way it responds has this sort of 
thick, fat, transient sound to it, which makes it an excellent choice for softening things that have very thin-sounding transients, if that makes sense. So things like snare drums that can come across as harsh. A ribbon mic has a great way of presenting this sort of fat, like, puffy low end. Uh, mandolin or banjo is another example of like a sharp transient that can be kind of ice picky. And the ribbon mic has a great way of smoothing this out and making those transients sound fat and smooth. Personally, I love ribbon mics and I made a whole episode about why ribbon mics rock and it's called Why Ribbon Mics Rock. (laughs) Go check that out for some more info, some cool things about ribbon mics. We're going to talk about ribbon mics a little bit more later in this episode. So condenser microphones operate a little bit differently than dynamic and ribbon mics. A condenser microphone has two charged plates with a voltage between them. One of these plates, the front, acts as the diaphragm and the back acts essentially like a constant. As the diaphragm vibrates, it changes the gap between the front and the back plate. You can almost think of this like a snare drum, like you hit the top head. The bottom head doesn't necessarily move a ton, but there's this sort of pressure that changes in the drum, right? So as the diaphragm vibrates, it changes the gap between the front and back plate, and that changes the capacitance. When the plates move closer together, the capacitance increases and a charge occurs. When the plates are farther apart, the capacitance decreases and a discharge occurs. Again, you could think of this like the drum head vibrating back and forth. The diaphragm and the plate are mounted in a frame, and this entire element is called the capsule. That's why it can be a little bit confusing, because we hear the term capsule, but we also hear the term diaphragm. Condenser microphones are often made out of mylar as well, except there's a problem. For condenser microphones to work on this capacitive principle, they have to be charged, which means they have to be conductive. And plastic is not a conductor, it's an insulator. So that means they often are sputtered with a conductive material like gold. Sputtering in this context essentially just means coating. Now, there have been many microphone designs, especially in early Neumanns, made of extremely thin metal. For example, the KM54 from Neumann is a diaphragm made completely out of nickel, just 0.7 microns thick. 0.7 microns. So, otherwise, microphones generally have to have some sort of coating on the diaphragm for them to actually work. Condenser mics are typically the most sensitive, lowest noise, highest output, most accurate, widest frequency response microphones on the market. It's no surprise why they're the most common in the studio. Now, they're typically split into the following categories. You have large diaphragm and small diaphragm condensers. Now, of course, these are kind of arbitrary terms. There are diaphragm sizes all between these extremes, but typically speaking, if the diaphragm is over an inch in diameter, we call it a large diaphragm mic. If it's under an inch, we call it small diaphragm mic. It's kind of a useless term, really, because you could have any amount of variance within that. You could have a microphone that's a half an inch and it's a small diaphragm. You could have one that's 0.9 inches and it's still a small diaphragm by that definition, but it sounds more like a larger diaphragm. You know what I mean? It's it's kind of a weird term, but technically that's how most people tend to accept it. Again, large diaphragms struggle a little bit with high frequencies sometimes, but reproduce lows really well, and they tend to be a little bit lower noise. Smaller diaphragm mics may struggle a little bit with lower frequencies, but are better at high frequencies, sometimes have higher noise. I just want to be clear that both are fully capable. It's more about what they excel on. Another category is tube or solid state. 
Tube microphones use a vacuum tube as part of the amplification stage, and solid-state microphones generally use transistors. Solid-state microphones, therefore, are often referred to as FET mics, as they use FETs, field-effect transistors. There's nothing inherently better or worse about either, despite what you might have heard. They both sound great and have a variety of uses. I have both in my studio. I use them both all the time. Now, tube microphones tend to distort and saturate a little bit easier uh, than, say, transistor mics do, which gives tube microphones a little bit more saturation, smoothness. Sometimes transients are not quite as sharp or pokey, but it's more subtle than, say, like a tube amp versus a solid-state amp. A tube microphone usually uses a single tube in the amplification stage, not like a tube guitar amp that uses, like, three preamp tubes and four power tubes. Like, we're talking about one tube in the stage versus seven. So it's not going to be as drastic as, like, tube amp versus solid-state amp. Solid-state condensers are generally powered with phantom power, and tube condensers use their own dedicated power supply. Another category that we have is single-pattern versus multi-pattern. Now, you might not think that's very different, but it's really a totally different type of design. Single-pattern microphones often only need one diaphragm and a backplate, but multi-pattern designs generally need two diaphragms. This understandably makes them more expensive. Single versus dual diaphragm. Now, I'm not talking about single-pattern versus multi-pattern. I'm talking about microphones that contain two independent capsules. One of the only companies I know of making microphones like this is Sankin. They have some microphones that have a small capsule and a large capsule within one housing. They produce a couple of different microphones like this. And it's actually a really brilliant idea. I mean, just like with speakers, we'll use like a two-way system with a woofer and a tweeter because the tweeter excels at highs, the woofer excels at lows. I kind of wish this was more common in microphones because it seems like a great idea. Condenser microphones are arguably the most versatile microphones in our arsenal. They typically have the widest frequency response and the highest sensitivity, and those are great things in the studio. They're common on just about everything, so it's really hard for me to tell you what they're good on versus what they're bad on. There are also lots of bright condensers and dark condensers, so it's not like condenser mics are always bright or something. They can, however, be much brighter than a dynamic mic or a ribbon mic, but not always. It just kind of depends. Now, let me say this. Because they generally distort easier, because they're a little bit wider frequency response, because they can tend to be a little bit brighter, I don't always like condenser microphones on things that are very bright or very loud, such as guitar amps or horns. I might go for more of a dynamic mic or a ribbon mic in those cases. Even still, there are certain condenser microphones that I love on guitar amps, and I still do love using condenser mics on overheads, so there is that. Suffice it to say, there are so many condensers out there, and they come in all different varieties, different tones. Some are brighter, some are darker, some are flatter, some are more colored, some are more whatever. Suffice it to say, they're so versatile, you can probably make them work on just about anything. So, I want to talk a bit about how to use microphones, how we use them. Typically speaking, my process for using microphones is relatively straightforward. You start with the source, always. The source is king. We've discussed this many, many times. I say it probably seven times per episode. The source is the most important thing about a sound, and it always will be. There's no microphone that will make a 24-inch kick drum sound like an 18-inch kick drum or a Fender Twin sound like a Plexi. It just doesn't work like that, okay? The idea is to get the right source, 
make it sound as good as possible, as early in the chain as possible with the right player, the right instrument, the right amp, the right room, the right drum, whatever. That's the thing we're actually recording. And as engineers, it is part of our responsibility to know how to listen to things in a room, not just listen through speakers, but how to listen to things in a room and try to get the tone right. So when I pick a microphone for the job, I'm usually looking for one of three things. First, I might be looking for a microphone that complements the sound, meaning if I'm recording a bright source, I'll use a microphone that's nice and bright to complement those features, to highlight those features even. Okay, so hi-hat is a good example. I don't always want to darken something that is bright. Sometimes I want to make it even brighter. An airy sounding vocalist is another good example. If I have a vocalist that is real breathy, I might want to use a microphone that accentuates or highlights that. Option two would be picking a microphone that offsets the sound. So maybe I am recording a bright source, like a trumpet, and I want to use a darker microphone to offset that brightness to create more of a balanced sound. Uh, it's really common for me on horns, brass instruments, guitar amps, things like that that can tend to be really bright to want to reach for a microphone that's a little bit darker so that I get a more balanced result. And the third option would be a more neutral microphone that captures the sound kind of as is without one, you know, too much coloration one way or the other. Part of the microphone decision also accounts for how the sound will fit into a mix, not just how it will sound on its own. For example, if I'm intending for the sound to be smaller and more tucked into the mix, I might not want to pick a microphone with a huge low end. Oppositely, if I'm intending to mic something far away because I want it to have some depth, some room ambience in the mix, and I want it to sit back, I might purposely pick a microphone with a full enough low end to still sound balanced when placed far away and not taking advantage of proximity effect. Does that make sense? Now, I want to say that over time, the more microphones you have, the more experience you have, the better you will get at picking a microphone for the job. It's a little bit tricky at first, but over the years of working with lots of different microphones, you will find things that the microphones excel on. You will find things that they're good for. Some microphones are better for the whole accentuation thing. Other microphones are better for the offset thing. Some microphones do a good job at both. It just kind of depends, right? You, you have to experiment with this stuff. And people ask me, can I get everything done with one microphone? Uh, yes, you can. Will it be harder? Yes. Okay, I, I'm not going to lie to you about that. It's harder when you only have a few microphones at your disposal because you don't really have many color options. You can do different placements and things like that, but you don't really have tons of tonal variation. Now, that's not to say that it's a problem per se. It just might make you work a little bit harder to get unique and interesting tones. So once you pick a microphone, it needs to be placed on the source. Placement is mostly a way of refining the low and high end, in my opinion. Angling things off axis will reduce harshness in the high end and high mids. In directional microphones, proximity effect has a huge impact on the lows. The mid-range between 400 and 2K, to me, doesn't seem to drastically be affected as much as the highs and lows when placing uh, microphones on things. So microphone placement is also more sensitive the closer you are to a source. It's like if you're one foot away from something, moving two inches is a big deal. But if you're 20 feet away from something, moving two inches will sound basically the same. The closer you are to a source, 
the more careful you need to be about placement. And again, if you move really close, you'll get more proximity effect. If you move farther away, you'll, your low end will reduce. Your high end will become a little bit smoother, sometimes a little bit darker, not necessarily like roll off, but it will definitely uh, get less clear and sort of articulate and in your face. Again, you can angle things, you can angle the microphone, and that will change a lot of the high mid character and the highs. You can put a microphone close, but then turn it to an angle. I mean, there's so many options, right? Now, many times I'm very much like an on-axis kind of guy. Like I take a microphone, I point it at what I'm trying to record. The angle is kind of dependent on what it is. But generally speaking, I like on-axis. I like pointing microphones straight into a vocalist's mouth. I like pointing them straight onto a guitar speaker. Uh, I like pointing them straight onto an acoustic guitar neck. You know, I, I don't do tons of wacky angling on microphone placements generally. Um, that's not necessarily, I don't know if that's a conscious decision. I just, I like how it sounds or straight on axis. I would almost rather pick a different microphone on axis if I needed something darker rather than angle one microphone to a darker spot, if that makes sense. But, you know, it kind of depends. It always depends. That, that's always, we have to say that, right? If you only have a couple of microphones, you probably will need to be a little bit more creative with your microphone placement because you don't have as many tonal options. Just keep in mind that they're not the same thing, like putting a dark microphone in a bright spot versus a brighter microphone in a darker spot, it's not quite the same. I actually did a YouTube video about this, if you might find that interesting. I used the front side and the back side of a ribbon mic that has a dark and a bright side on the same guitar sound, and I put the darker mic in a brighter spot and the brighter mic in a darker spot and compared those sounds. So go check out that video. You might learn a thing or two about that. Now, there are so many microphone placement techniques, I could probably fill a book with them. In fact, there are tons of books filled with them. <laughs> uh, you know, they're only meant to be used as starting places, though. General rules of thumb. There's no correct place to put a microphone. Okay, I just need to clarify that. There's no correct place to put a microphone. There are just time-tested methods that many engineers have used. They're good starting places. For example, a condenser mic a foot away at the 12th fret of an acoustic guitar is probably going to get you a decent acoustic sound, right? That method has been used for so many years on so many records. And yeah, it sounds good, but sometimes you need to move it a little bit closer, or sometimes you need to move it a little bit farther. Sometimes you need two microphones. Maybe you need to do stereo or mid-side, or maybe you need to do three microphones. The truth is, microphones have to be placed by ear. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you got to put on headphones and move it around and all that. You don't have to do that. But you can't just place a microphone in a spot and assume it's going to work, even if it has worked a thousand times. You always have to play this game of listen and respond listen and respond. Over time, you're going to find techniques that you like and get you results quickly that you enjoy. Maybe they aren't what the pros like. Okay. A good example for me, I cannot get Sennheiser 421s to sound right to me on toms. And it drives me insane because I know so many engineers that use 421s on toms. And no matter how many times I use them, they just sound weird to me. They don't sound right. They don't sound like toms. I have always found condenser mics to be more right sounding on toms. 
And I don't know why that is, okay? I really don't. <laughs> but that's one of those things where, like, you see people, and you've seen them for decades, use 421s on toms. And so you can't just copy those techniques and expect to get a great result. You have to apply them to your own tastes and see what you can get out of them. Maybe you'll find some really wacky techniques that other people don't use and that give you something cool and creative to call your own. So many times when I'm trying to decide on a starting place, or a microphone technique, I'm trying to decide on what is the context of this sound, right? What is its placement in the mix? For example, if I want the acoustic guitar to be, if I'm recording like a solo acoustic guitar sound, I want it to take up a lot of room because it's a solo instrument. So I can maybe choose a stereo technique of some kind where the guitar is big and wide and spread out. Maybe I've got a situation where I've got a band and I've got acoustic guitar in the band, right? There's drums, there's electric guitars, there's keys. And so I need the acoustic to be prominent, but I don't need it to be as big as stereo. So most of the time in those situations, I choose mid-side. Now, mid-side is a great technique that allows you to have sort of like a little bit bigger than mono, but not quite stereo sound, and it collapses down into mono really well. Now, if I'm recording something where the acoustic is just a tiny little layer in the background, uh, you know, maybe something where uh, it's like a pop song and there's just acoustic, you know, maybe a double-tracked acoustic left and right just to add a little bit of twinkly top end, I'll probably just use one microphone on that and double-track it. You know, I don't necessarily need a prominent sound. So a lot of times when I'm picking a technique, whether it's like overheads or room mics or whatever, I'm trying to think of the placement of that source in the mix. Okay, if I want something to be bigger or smaller or prominent or more tucked back, that partly has an impact on what microphone technique I will use as a starting place. And from there, I'm refining that technique to find the tone that works. Now, once you kind of decide on a starting place, you have to listen over the studio monitors. You got to listen in solo. You got to listen in context. The goal, of course, is to try to find something that works for both. Now, don't get me wrong, that's very hard. And not every situation, you're, you're not going to be able to get this perfect finished sound that works in context, okay? A great example is like hi-hat mics. Generally speaking, you can high-pass a hi-hat microphone really high, and it doesn't affect it at all because you don't need 100 hertz on your hi-hat mic. You don't need 200 hertz or even 300 hertz most of the time on your hi-hat mic. Are you going to find a microphone that really has like nothing below 300 hertz? Probably not. That microphone probably wouldn't sell very well. So sometimes you can't think about it that far ahead. Like, oh, I'm going to take all the low end out of this. I got to find a microphone that has no low end. That's not always the best course of action. But my point is you have to think about it in the context of everything as is. You got to think about it. Does it sound good on its own? Does it sound good in context? Now, if you're not liking how it sounds or you're not totally satisfied with how it sounds, you, of course, have to decide what to do about that. Is it the source? Is it the mic placement? Is it the mic choice? Is it something else? Now, I know this whole process I'm describing is basically just like how to record. I mean, it's a process of listening and responding. We listen to the source and we decide, is it, a, is it the right source for the job? We listen to the mic that we put on there and decide, is this the right mic for the job? We listen to the, the mic technique we've chosen. Does it fit in context? Does it work? We're constantly listening to our results and deciding if that's a good decision. 
If you're interested in learning more about microphones and mic techniques, I would highly recommend looking at the Microphone Book by John Ergel, as well as the Recording Engineer's Handbook by Bobby Osinski. The internet, of course, has a vast and endless pool of resources as well. But hopefully this gives you an idea of what goes through my mind when I'm trying to pick a microphone and place a microphone. Now, one more thing that I will mention before we wrap this episode up is what I like to call the microphone audit. Now, when it comes to picking a microphone on things, sometimes the only way you can get a truly good answer on whether or not it's a good decision is in retrospect. You listen back to the sound of a mix that you really liked, and you look at the acoustic guitar and you said, man, I had to add so much high frequency stuff to that acoustic to make it sound right. You can audit your own sources and say, you know, maybe my go-to acoustic microphone needs to be brighter. Or, man, I had to take out so much low-end from my room mic or from my vocal mic. That's one of the most powerful ways that you can learn to get better microphone techniques and better microphone choices is by auditing your own experience, right? Like auditing a mix that you did, a recording you did. Note the things that worked really well. Okay, this violin sound is gorgeous. I did a great job. What microphone was that? Remember that. But also, man, this kick drum, I had to do a ton of EQ on. Or this snare drum, I had to take out so much harshness. Maybe I should use a different mic. Don't worry about what they say is a studio standard. Like I said, 421s. People tell me all the time, like... I use 421s on toms. I use 421s. And I look at my heroes, and so many of them use 421s on toms. They don't sound right to me on toms. So I don't use them on toms. Again, I'm not saying that you're looking for some perfect tom sound that sounds great on its own and doesn't work in context. Like, you still do have to consider the context of what you're working on. So be mindful of that when auditing your stuff. You have to realize that maybe the acoustic guitar sound you're looking for is kind of like overly bright, crazy bright. And maybe it works for that production, but you wouldn't necessarily want that to be your go-to microphone. But for example, if you find yourself cutting a bunch of low-end and boosting a bunch of high-end on every single set of overheads that you use across different genres, across different productions, you might need to ask yourself, should I be using different overhead mics? Like, should I be using, maybe you're using ribbons and they're too fat and too dark and you actually prefer the sound of condensers. Now, of course, condensers and ribbons have different transient responses, so that would factor into it as well. But maybe you'd be looking for something like a large diaphragm condenser that has a little bit more sluggish transient response, but has a little bit more brightness and tightness than a ribbon mic does, right? So you can analyze it like a puzzle and try to figure out, man, if I got a microphone that did this, 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 I could get closer on the way in. And I can guarantee you in most situations, the closer you can get, the earlier in the chain, the better it will be. The better you can get at picking a microphone for a certain job. Okay, for example, off the top of my head, here's another one. I typically like a certain ribbon mic. I have an AEA N22, and that's an awesome ribbon mic for all kinds of things. Now, I like that microphone on electric guitar pretty well, but it has a lot of mid-range compared to, uh, say, 57 and a Royer 121 paired together. That's a great sound. It's a little bit more scooped based on how you blend them. But the N22 is a little bit flatter. 
So I know off the top of my head, if I'm doing a lead sound, the N22 can be a great thing for that because it has a little bit more mid-range, a little bit more that sort of vocal, like 600 to 2K region. And that can be a really great thing for leads. But for rhythm guitar, it can get a little bit more honky. So even just that, I know, all right, that's a good thing for me to put in my pocket and remember next time I'm doing an electric guitar session. Or I know that for certain acoustic guitar sounds, I really like the AKG 451 because it's really bright, but don't necessarily like it as much for finger picking. I really like a U67 for finger picked acoustic, and I like a U67 for acoustic in general, but sometimes you need a really bright microphone on acoustic, and other times you need a darker mic with a bright guitar. So like, it's always a combination of these little formulas. It's like cooking, right? Nothing is necessarily going to work every single time for every single dish, but you gotta figure out little things that work. A little bit of salt and pepper here works great. A uh, little bit of paprika works on this, but not really so much on this. It always is evolving. You're always learning more. You're always learning more about your own tools, and that's how it should be, right? We should always keep trying to learn more and grow and get better. So hopefully this has given you some things to consider when it comes to microphones. Hopefully you understand a little bit more about how microphones work and how we use them. Stay tuned for part three, where we're going to be talking about myths and misconceptions about microphones.